Good morning, church family. Happy Easter. He is risen. Now, that's the part you're supposed to say, he is risen indeed. Let's try it again. He is risen. Ah, that's better. You didn't know that I had microphones in your, in your living rooms, but there it is. Easter week, guys, this is the most exciting week in the entire Christian calendar. I think it's the most exciting week in the history of mankind. You know, I, you've heard me say this before, but you know, the Easter weekend kind of divides history. That before Easter, it was BC, before Christ. And after Easter, it's Annos Domini in the year of our Lord, AD. This is, this is an amazing moment to be alive. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we just need to understand that Easter is a very special moment in the Christian calendar. Hallelujah. You know, I want to talk to you today uh, about Jesus and about why Easter is so spectacular. But I'm only going to touch a little bit about why Jesus had to die. But I want to talk about when Jesus died. Because the week that Jesus died is actually a hugely significant week in the history of the world. And it's, I'm going to tell you, it's actually epically significant for us this year in the year 2020 with all that is going on around us. So let's pray. And then we're going to launch into talking about this week of Passover or this Easter week and how it connects to us here even 2,000 years after Jesus's death and life. Father God, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your presence. Come now, Holy One, and uh, capture our hearts and minds, Lord God, and show us, teach us, remind us, compel us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray for eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive and respond. I pray for a revelation of Christ that draws us to him. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. I want to talk today about I will draw all men to me. Jesus said, if I be lifted up on the cross, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Well, what does that mean? Well, we want to talk about Passover. And, uh, you know, the very first Passover that happened was in 1528 BC, which means it was 3,500 years ago. And you remember the story of Passover that uh, the Israelites, they were, they were in Egypt and uh, they were taken captive and made prisoners in Egypt. And uh, for hundreds of years, they served as slaves to the Egyptians. Finally, God sends them a deliverer and his name is Moses, uh, who was raised in an Egyptian home, but really uh, Pharaoh's home actually. And, uh, but he, now he comes back as a deliverer to, to have a message for the people of Egypt. And the message was this. He was speaking to Pharaoh, who was the king or the ruler of the Egyptians. He said, let my people go, that they might worship me. But of course, Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, he again pleads with Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no, there are slaves. We're keeping them. And so what ends up happening is that God actually starts to send 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. And you can read about this in the book of Exodus, all these different plagues. I mean, it's like water turns to blood. It's like uh, frogs all over the land, literally frogs covering the land. And then gnats filling the air. You can't breathe. And then blood-sucking insects. We don't know what they are. Maybe, they're, maybe they were mosquitoes. We don't know. But so many of them were there. Like all the animals were being attacked by these things. It was horrible. And every time that one of these plagues would happen, 
uh, Moses would go back to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say, okay, finally go or no, 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 I'm not going to do it. But then he would start to soften and say, well, pray to your God to take these things away and then I'll see. And every time that God took them away, Pharaoh would harden his heart again and say, no, I'm not going to let him go. So nine times uh, these plagues come. Well, there's actually 10, but nine of them, Pharaoh hardens his heart after each one. It's incredible. After the third plague, none of the plagues that affected the Egyptians actually affected the Hebrews or the the Jews. None of them. So even though there there was all these different plagues happening, it didn't happen where where the Jews were, which is kind of incredible. God was keeping his people safe even in that moment. And over these plagues, it was interesting. God would always, you know, keep his people safe. And, and those who listened to God, even the Egyptians that listened to God were kept safe. Let me read that scripture to you, Exodus 9, 20. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. And of course, what happened there was that plague of, of uh, hail that turned into fire. It was horrible. Many people died through that. So finally, nine times this happens. Finally, Pharaoh's like, uh, you know, I'm not letting you go. And God says, I'm going to bring a tenth plague. And this is the worst of all the plagues. And the plague is this. I'm going to judge Egypt's sin and Pharaoh's sin. And so the firstborn of Egypt, every firstborn animal, every firstborn human is going to perish. And so here's the problem, though. In judging Egypt's sin, God then had to also look at a way of judging Israel's sin. But he comes up with a plan. He comes up with this plan of substitution that those who would trust God's plan of substitution, the, pay, the plague would pass them over. And so this is what happens is, is that, you know, the, the, the Egyptians were guilty of sin, but so were the Israelites guilty of sin. And so God says, I've got a plan for you. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a lamb and these lambs have to be perfect without blemish. And you need a lamb for every household. And you're going to take that lamb. You're going to sacrifice that lamb. And then you're going to take the blood of that lamb. And you're going to put it on the top of your doorpost and on the sides of your doorpost. And then what you're going to do is gather your family into the home. And uh, if there's other people that are there, gather them in your home as well. And you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to cook this lamb. You're going to eat it with bitter herbs and with unleavened bread because leaven represented sin. And when, my, when, when I come by and I see that blood on your doorposts, I'm going to pass over and not bring destruction upon you. This is literally what it says in Exodus chapter 12. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when it strikes Egypt. And so, of course, you know, many of the Egyptians didn't listen to God's warning. The Hebrews began to listen to God's warning, and they all would would gather together in these homes, and the blood of the lamb that was slain was on the doorposts and, and on the sides, and sure enough, the plague came, and it took out the firstborn of Egypt, every one of them. Every firstborn child was taken. Every firstborn older person, if they were firstborn, they were taken. It was horrible. A horrible, destructive plague came upon the land. But everybody who was in a house that had this blood was safe and saved. And so this moment of Passover, God would pass over the houses that had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and frame. 
And so the Jews to this day celebrate that event every single year, this time in the calendar, which is also the time of Easter for us as believers. So now we're going to fast forward the story. We're fast forwarding the story 1,500 years to another Passover. And so Jesus is literally having a Passover in Jerusalem with his disciples and followers. And you got to understand this, this festival of Passover is one of the biggest festivals on the entire Jewish calendar. The, the, the city of Jerusalem had 50,000 inhabitants. But on Passover, it would swell to over 100,000, up to 120,000 people. Can you imagine a city, uh, you know, doubling in size? For us, it would be like St. Albert, literally over doubling in size in a, in a matter of one week. And so this is what's happening. There's this, this incredible festival that's happening, this incredible celebration of God's deliverance of his people that this Passover has happened. And, uh, you know, and something else has occurred that kind of makes this whole story amazing. Jesus actually performed an incredible miracle just days before, the week before kind of Passover. And the miracle was that one of his good friends named Lazarus had died. And uh, so he gets word that Lazarus has died and uh, he says, don't worry, this is not going to end in death. It's for the glory of God. But unfortunately, Lazarus is dead in the tomb for four days. Four days. And uh, this is what makes the miracle even more amazing because for some reason, there was Jewish mythology that believed that a person could be dead for three days and still be raised from the dead. But after three days, there's no more. So Jesus even, even blows that away. He's like, no, 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 not three days, four days. I'm going to wait a little bit longer. So here's, here's, you know, here's poor Lazarus. He's dead in this tomb, kind of like an easy bake oven, not going to lie to you. You know, he's wrapped in grave clothes. It's not cool. And he's covered in spices. And Jesus comes to the place and he says, roll the stone away. And, and of course, you know, Mary, or sorry, Martha, Lazarus's sister says, but Lord, he stinketh. Jesus is like, roll the stone away. And he calls out in a loud voice and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And of course, we know that he's wrapped in grave clothes, which I'll get to in a minute. And you can see him hopping out. You know, it's kind of like, it's, this is like Christian horror story. This is terrifying. Ah, he's coming, the mummy, the mummy. He's coming out. And he comes out and it's incredible. He's wrapped in his grave clothes. And Jesus says these words, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Kind of an interesting thing. Jesus' words matched Moses' words. Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Jesus said to death, let my people go. So this is an incredible story, and people are hearing this story. They're, they're all hearing this story. Do you understand? This is not just the story that uh, has occurred. It's actually a, the buzz is all over Israel about this prophet named Jesus. He's a man of God, and look what he's just done. He's done this incredible miracle of raising somebody from the dead. So now that's where our story takes off in the 12th chapter of John. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. But here's the first person who gets drawn to this Jesus character in our story. And it, the, it's a person by the name of Mary, who is Lazarus's sister. So Jesus draws Mary to himself. Listen to what happens. When Mary took a, a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it onto Jesus's feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. 
And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth more than a year's wages. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Incredible. What an act of devotion. Mary is drawn to Jesus. She's at the feet of Jesus. All the time we see Mary in the scriptures, she's at the feet of Jesus. It's a symbol of her devotion to the Lord. And this is kind of an incredible act, guys. She takes this, this, this uh, alabaster jar of, of pure nard perfume, and I won't go into all the details of the expense of this perfume, but it was brutally expensive. More than a year's wages or a year's full wage. And the Bible says she breaks the seal off the top. And if you'd study all three gospels, she actually pours the entire bottle out from Jesus's head all the way, it begins to cover his entire body all the way down to his feet. You, can you imagine this, this perfume had this sweet, beautiful smell and it's pouring over Jesus's head. It's running down his beard. It's running down his clothes. It's running onto his hands. It's running, it's literally soaking into his clothing. It's, it, it's getting onto every part of his body. And Jesus said <clears throat> that my, my body was anointed for burial. Finally, it's on his feet. And then Mary does something incredible. She actually takes her hair down. She uncovers herself that way, which only women were supposed to do to their husbands. It's an incredible act of intimacy. So in a sense, she's making herself extremely vulnerable. So much so that she gets rebuked for it. She gets rebuked for wasting the perfume and for exposing herself in this way. But Jesus says, leave her alone. She's anointed me for my burial. Can you imagine even a week later that Jesus would still have that scent on him? That's how permeating this perfume would be. Incredible thought of devotion. Jesus draws Mary to this place of intimate, extravagant worship and devotion. But he doesn't stop there. You see, Jesus draws the Jews to himself now. Incredible. This is what happens the next day. The next day, a great crowd had come from the festival. They heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey, a young donkey, sorry, a coal full of a donkey, and sat on it as he entered Jerusalem. Incredible picture. Remember, the population is more than doubled, guys. It's almost tripled. And uh, they're, they're hearing about Jesus, and they hear Jesus is coming into town. So they grab palm branches, and they run out to meet him. And, and the significance of this is quite incredible. Here's the first thing that you need to understand about what's happening right now. The king is being given a triumph. And what's a triumph? Well, in Jesus' day, when a conquering king would enter the city of his origin or where he was from, he would return from battle and he would, be, he would be given this thing called a triumph where the whole city would run out to meet him. And uh, what they would do is they would begin to shout and praise him. And as he came in, often riding on a golden chariot with his armies behind him in his full warrior wardrobe, and he would be bringing the spoils of that battle into the city. And people would be shouting and cheering and going crazy because the king had returned triumphant. It's interesting that Jesus is not riding on a golden chariot. 
He's riding on the foal of a donkey. Guys, this is the thing that you see when you go on kitty, to kitty zoos and the kids get a ride. This is a tiny little donkey. It's so small. This is kind of like we all picture that in our mind. We think of precious moments, Jesus, you know, big eyes and he's coming in. No, no, this is a full grown man. This is God Almighty. This is, sir, this is Jesus Christ who came as a man, but he lived as a carpenter. He was a chiseled man, you guys. This guy was ripped. Do you understand? He's, he's riding on the foal of a donkey. It's kind of a ridiculous picture of a king coming in, but keep that in your mind. We'll come back to that in a minute. The king was being given a triumph, but also Jewish nationalism was pri- proudly on display, you guys. We need to understand something. The palm branch represents something to the Jews. And it was not an accident that they grabbed palm branches. You see, just over 100 years before this event that Jesus is taking place, there was a revolt in Jerusalem called the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt was when basically they said, we're not going to worship foreign gods anymore. We're taking back our city. And they did. They actually had a rebellion that, that displaced the worship of the Greeks and the Romans, and they reinstituted the worship of Jehovah God. It was actually a successful rebellion. And so to to commemorate that, they actually minted gold coins. And guess what they stamped on those gold coins? Palm leaves. So when these people are grabbing palm branches, they are are signaling something. They are saying, the king has come back. The king has come back. And they're they're shouting Jewish nationalism. And we are going to establish the kingdom of God. This is what we've been waiting for. The king is returning. He's bringing his kingdom. He's going to displace the Romans. What a day it will be. This is the party moment. The people of Israel, the Jews, are being drawn to Jesus Sounds good. Mary gets drawn to Jesus. The Jews, the nation gets drawn to Jesus. It doesn't stop there. And it's incredible. You know, I want you to know that the Roman rulers saw this. And this disturbed them a little bit. I want you to know that the the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders took notice as well. Listen to what it says. The religious leaders turned to one another and said, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Jesus is drawing mankind. He draws this woman, Mary. He draws the people of of Israel. But now he is drawing the world. Look what the scripture goes on and tells us. Jesus draws the world to himself. Now there were some Greeks among them who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. They said, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And that word see is a very intimate word. It's a word we want to behold his majesty. We want to worship him. We want to know him. We want to be close to him. It's not unusual. We know in the Bible there are many stories of those who are the non-Jews that were being drawn to Jesus. And so really in calling these people Greeks, they weren't necessarily Greeks. All they were saying is they were non-Jews. They were non-Jewish people. And they, they were fearers of God. They wanted to worship God. They feared the Lord. This is seen in the Bible. The Queen of Sheba came. She came from Ethiopia to worship God. Naam the leper came, and he was the, the Arab army's leader. You know, guys, this is all the time. God is painting a picture. He's been setting up for this moment. This is Jesus' moment. Not only has he come to draw the Jews back to himself, but he's actually come to draw the world back to himself. Wow. The world is running to reach Jesus. It's incredible. A king is about to be revealed. 
This is his coronation ceremony. You know, the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ is about to be revealed. Do you understand the glory of a king is about to be revealed? Everyone's being drawn toward him. Now look at this next moment in our scripture that's incredible. Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Woo! Everybody has a picture of that. Are you following what I'm saying? The Jews have a picture of that. The world is running toward Jesus. Mary has a picture. Everybody has a picture of what that means. But look what Jesus says the glory of God is. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Then he kind of turns the cannon onto the people listening and he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant will be also. My father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus went on and said, how now how is, my, is my heart troubled? And what shall I say, Father? save me from this hour? No, it was for this very hour that I have come. Father, glorify your name. Suddenly, the story changes. Suddenly, there's something happening. Jesus has this idea and this understanding of glory. You know, the people should have got it. You see, Jesus didn't ride in on a golden chariot. He rolled in on the foal of a donkey, gentle and humble, it said in Zechariah. Has your king come to you? See, he's not come to conquer kingdoms. He's come to conquer the hearts of men. And he's giving us a demonstration of how that happens. It happens through laying down your life. And then he invites us into that moment. And can you imagine, he invites us to follow him in that. And I want you to get what's happening in the hearts and minds of people. They have an expectation of the king. They have an expectation of what this means. And they are sorely disappointed. I remember my sister Linda telling me a story about Frank Zappa, who back in the 70s was a, a huge rock star. And uh, he had this whole pl plan, and this is kind of hilarious. He actually rented this huge stadium, and it said, See Frank Zappa Live. And so people bought tickets, came from all over to come and see Frank Zappa. They waited in anticipation, and all that was on the stage was a single chair. There wasn't a band. There wasn't anything. Frank Zappa came out, sat in the chair silently for five minutes, looked around the room, got up and left. Can you imagine the disappointment? They're like, Frank Zappa's coming! And he just, he actually fulfilled what he said he was going to do. I'm, I'm coming. See Frank Zappa live. <laughs> he didn't say he was going to sing. He didn't say how long he was going to be there. This is the disappointment that these people are starting to feel right now. Jesus has come. You know, I, I love this thought. Roy Hesse, and I'm, I'm going I'm to just kind of rearrange it with my own words, but I love this thought. Glory in man's eyes is that which exalts him in the sight of others. But glory in God's eyes is that which humbles him for the sake of others. <sighs> wow. So why does Jesus have to die? This is where the story gets really good. I mean, this is where the story gets good Friday good. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is where the story gets really exciting. You know, I'm going to tell you something. This is earth-shatteringly good. This has changed the world good. 
Why did Jesus have to die? Because he came as the Passover lamb. Jesus comes as the Passover lamb. And, and he's, he's the substitutionary sacrifice church. He's the one who's going to step in and take their place. Do you understand? He's saying, you guys, your sins deserve judgment, but I will take the place of judgment for you. I will substitute myself. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to be the lamb of God. The substitutionary sacrifice, not only for the nation of Israel, but for all people who will choose to trust him and follow him. Wow, wow, wow. Jesus is taking our place so that the plague of sin and death will not grip us any longer, church. Hallelujah. This is who he is. You see, he paid a price he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. This is the substitution that has happened. This is why Jesus went on in the text and said this, now has come the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus said this to demonstrate the kind of death he was about to die. You catch that first part? The time of judgment has come. Church, listen to me. The time of judgment has come on mankind, on the world. But Jesus is taking the judgment. <laughs> Jesus is willingly laying down his life, becoming that substitutionary lamb. The sins of the world are placed on him. Your sin, my sin, if we will but believe and receive Jesus Christ into our lives. Wow. See, Jesus at that moment then calls people to trust him and to follow him if they really want to live. If they truly want to experience life. But all of a sudden, people begin to turn. You see, there's been a great thing that's happened. Now suddenly, they're not being attracted by Jesus, but somewhat being repelled. If you think of Jesus like a magnet, it's like the magnet has flipped. And either you're going to run toward him and go the way he's going, or you're going to be repelled by him. That's what's happening. See, they begin to misunderstand what they will get by following him. Do you follow me? They're misunderstanding it. They're misunderstanding the kingdom of God that comes. You know, they thought that the king of kings and the king of the kingdom was coming to establish his kingdom and his rule and his reign. But what they failed to see was a full-grown man riding on the foal of a donkey, coming gentle and humble heart to rule the lives of men. Even the crowd speaks up at that moment, and this is what they say. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man needs to be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? It's not the Son of Man they want. It's not the Son of Man they were expecting. Do you understand? Suddenly the one that they were drawn to, he's saying, you guys, listen, there's a requirement here. You need to surrender your life. You need to give your life up. Your life is not your own. You need to follow me. Even into death. 
You see, they misunderstand what it means to die. This is so critical. They misunderstand what Jesus was inviting them to. He wasn't saying you need to literally go on a cross like I'm going on a cross. But what you need to do is lay your life down before me and lay your life down for the sake of others. Stop being selfish and self-centered. This is the invitation of Jesus. Be God-centered. Turn your life to me and I will give you real life. But if you keep hanging on and trying to protect and hang on to this world, you're going to lose it all. What a moment Jesus is saying. Guys, I want you to understand something, and, and this is so critical for you to grasp. There's a subjective and an objective side of the cross of Jesus Christ. The subjective side is what we sing about in songs, and the subjective side is what we love about the cross. The subjective side is, is what we get from the cross. He took my place. He paid the price. Oh, it's so wonderful. It's so good. Look at, I'm loved by God. I'm adopted into his family. And I'm not saying those things are bad. They're beautiful. They're amazing. They're awesome. But there is an objective side to the cross. And the objective side to the cross is what God saw on the cross. And what God saw on the cross was that the sins of the world were placed on Jesus. The judgment that every human being deserved fell upon Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. This was the price that was being paid. Jesus was saying the world's about to be judged. He wasn't talking about, I've not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I've come to save the world by taking the judgment the world deserves. <sighs> wow. And then he calls people to faith. You see, he calls them to this time of opportunity this kairos moment, this opportunity time. Listen to what he says in the text. And I know I'm reading a lot of text, but the whole story is here, church. You can read it yourself later. Then Jesus said to them, you're only going to have this light for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the light does not know where they are going. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left them and hid himself from them. Church, listen to me. Friends, listen to me. You have light only for a moment. You see clearly. And God says, when you see, take that opportunity. Take that opportunity. Put your faith in me. Trust in me. Follow me. Let go of your life. Give me your life. Surrender to me. This is the story of the Passover that Jesus lived before he became the Passover lamb just a few days later. It's quite a story, Pastor Greg. But what does it have to do with us? 2,000 years later. Wow, let me tell you something. Never before has a Passover meant more than it means right now. You see, the world, church family, the world is being invited into a Passover. That's what's going on right now. The world's being invited at this time. This global pandemic is, is coming, and I'm going to tell you, we are helpless, and we absolutely need God in this moment. And, and you know, many people are turning to God. Thank you for turning to God. I, I'm so delighted that you're turning to God. I have a passion to cry out to the world, turn to God in this moment. You cannot manage this on your own. This is God's heart. You know, I think 
I'm going to just tell you, you know this is true. Our attempts to manage this without God are going to create even more worse things. They just are, church. You need to understand that. And ask Pharaoh when he tried to manage without God. How did that go for him? You know, it's why I'm crying out and pleading and praying for you and I to be people of prayer, for our leaders to cry out to God in this hour. We need God's help. It's so incredible. Every realm, every sphere has been shaken. I got a blog uh, just the other day, and this blog came from a very well-known, world-famous athlete. And I'm going to read you his blog before I tell you his name. Listen to what he says. In three short months, just like he did with the plagues of Egypt, God has taken away everything we worship. God said, you want to worship athletes? I will shut down the stadiums. You want to worship musicians? I will shut down the civic centers. You want to worship actors? I will shut down the theaters. You want to worship money? I will shut down the economy and collapse the stock market. You don't want to go to church and worship me? I will make it where you can't go to church. And then he quotes this great scripture. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Hallelujah. Maybe we don't need a vaccine, he goes on and says. Maybe we need to take this time of isolation from the distractions of the world and have a personal revival where we focus on only one thing in the world that really matters, Jesus. Do you know who said that this week? The world-famous ex-professional wrestler, Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, seven-foot-tall monster of a man, is riding on a donkey with Jesus. <laughs> Come on, you powerful man. You're going to get on with Hulk and Jesus? Or are you going to keep trying to do this yourself without him? I'm begging you listeners to get things right with God right now. To do your business with God right now. I'm begging you. Jesus pleaded with him. Twice in this story, he actually calls them to faith. Twice he, he calls them out, please, while you have the light, please, while you see clearly, please, while you understand that you need me, won't you turn to me in this hour? Won't you turn to me in this moment? You know, Jesus is giving the world a Passover moment. He's calling us to Passover, church. And I want you to understand that. It's an incredible moment. I'm speaking not only to the followers of God, church, listen to me, I'm not only just speaking to the followers of God, I'm speaking to those of you that want to become followers of God. But you're not excluded followers of God from this moment. You're in this Passover moment as well. The entire world is being arrested by God right now. God is giving them a moment of faith, of clarity. See, we don't understand something. You know, it doesn't matter what it costs us. It doesn't matter as long as we have God. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. We're not built and made for this world. We're built for the world that comes after. 
This is what God is saying. Get things right with me. Listen to me, church family. What happens if our faith in Jesus doesn't produce the results we want? Are we going to be like the Jews who are like, oh, Hosanna to the King of Kings. Oh, he's come. He's going to restore everything. Everything's going to be okay. What if everything's not going to be okay right now? (laughs) What if it's going to take years for our economy to recover, if ever, from what we're going through right now? Will you still trust Jesus? Will you still believe in him in this hour, in this moment? Will you take up the cry of my people who are called by my name? That's you and me who have a relationship with God. If they will humble themselves, if they will seek, if they will turn, if they will pray, I will heal their land. It's our moment, church. People, time to cry out to God. The world is desperate to see the sons and daughters of God revealed in this hour. It's our choice. What are we going to do? Who is our Jesus and how are we going to follow him in this hour? You know, I'm going to tell you that I I couldn't get away from the fact that women tend to get this before men. (laughs) Women tend to see the need and, and come to Jesus. And this is why Mary plays this prominent role in the story You know, I've seen this in the church for years and years and years. Even in Jesus' life, even after his death, it's all women that surround him. They're the women that go to the tomb. They're the women that are staring at him in the cross. They're the women that are, women tend to get this. They want to follow God. They've surrendered their lives. They're designed to do this. But I'm going to tell you something. Men are the ones who push back. Think of Mary's devotion. Are you going to pour out the most valuable thing that you have in your life right now? Are you going to pour it out onto the feet of Jesus? Are you going to humble yourself, let down your hair, and wipe the feet of Jesus? I mean, it's incredible the devotion that Mary shows and calls us to, to lay down our life before God. What's the most valuable thing that you have, church? It's your life. Are you willing to lay it down at the feet of Jesus? This is the question that's before us. See, there's a revelation of Jesus right now in the world, the need of God right now in the world that has not been for a Passover for thousands of years. And I believe this is the final Passover moment before the return of the Lord. It's time to do business with God. It's time to come to the Lord, to cry out to Him. What are you afraid that you're going to lose? What do you, what do you get afraid that you're going to lose? Do you know that The stock market just literally dropped in three weeks. Trillions and trillions of dollars are gone. Where we've put our hope, it's gone. In an instant, gone. It's gone. So where are you going to put your hope now? What are you afraid to lose? Your life? Jesus said you're looking in the wrong column because what you're going to gain is life and life abundant. See, this is the message of Easter, guys. This is the choice of Easter. There's no neutral ground. You choose whom you're going to serve. You choose whom you're going to follow. So fathers, right now I have a word for you. And I felt very strongly from the Holy Spirit about this. So much so I could not get away from it. Fathers, you are critical in this hour. You have done a great job. You've led your families. You've provided for your families. And I know I'm generalizing, but just follow me for a moment. But now it's time to follow and to lead your families to Jesus Christ, to humble yourself. Or are you going to lead your family to surrender 
are you going to continue to try and control everything that's going around? You know, it's not enough for mom to make a decision. It's not enough for mom to say, we're going to follow Jesus as a family. Dads, you need to follow Christ right now. You know, there's a survey done in 1994, a Swedish survey. They did a massive survey of their entire nation about church and who goes to church. And it was interesting. Let me just read a couple statistics for you. If a father is non-practicing and a mother is regular, only 2% of the children will become regular worshipers. Wow. But when a father is an attender, even an irregular attender, there are some extraordinary effects, the survey went on and said. An irregular father and a non-practicing mother will yield 25% of their children as regular church attenders. And in the future, 23% will become irregular attenders. That's 12 times the yield of when moms and the roles are reversed. Fathers, you are critical in this hour. It goes on and says, and I won't read the whole article to you, but it's incredible. If a father goes regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers. Yet the opposite is true. If only the mother is a regular goer, only one in 50 of their children will follow God. Dads, you are critical in this hour. It's time to... Bow your knee before the Lord. It's time to get on the foal of a donkey with Jesus and with the Hulk. (laughs) Hulk Hogan and you and Jesus humbling yourselves in this hour and leading your family. We're going to watch a video clip right now that calls men to devotion. And the story goes that this man is a police officer. It's from the movie Courageous. He's a police officer and he's kind of just going through life. He's a believer. He's a follower of God. But he's not really fully devoted to the Lord. And then his nine-year-old daughter dies. And it shakes his whole foundation. And he realizes how undevoted he has been. And so he turns his life back to a devotion to the Lord. And then he invites men to follow. Let's watch this clip together. I now believe that God desires for every father to courageously step up and do whatever it takes to be involved in the lives of his children. But more than just being there, providing for them, he's to walk with them through their young lives and be a visual representation of the character of God, their father in heaven. The father should love his children and seek to win their hearts. He should protect them, discipline them, and teach them about God. He should model how to walk with integrity and treat others with respect. He should call out his children to become responsible men and women who live their lives for what matters in eternity. Some men will hear this and mock it or ignore it. But I tell you that as a father, you are accountable to God for the position of influence he has given you. You can't fall asleep at the wheel only to wake up one day and realize that your job or your hobbies have no eternal value, but the souls of your children do. Some men will hear this and agree with it, but have no resolve to live it out. Instead, they will live for themselves and waste the opportunity to leave a godly legacy for the next generation. 
But there are some men who, regardless of the mistakes we've made in the past, regardless of what our fathers did not do for us, will give the strength of our arms and the rest of our days to loving God with all that we are and to teach our children to do the same. And whenever possible, to love and mentor others who have no father in their lives, but who desperately need help and direction. And we are inviting any man whose heart is willing and courageous to join us in this resolution. In my home, the decision has already been made. You don't have to ask who will guide my family, because by God's grace, I will. You don't have to ask who will teach my son to follow Christ, because I will. Who will accept the responsibility of providing and protecting my family? I will. Who will ask God to break the chain of destructive patterns in my family's history? I will. Who will pray for and bless my children to boldly pursue whatever God calls them to do? I am their father. I will. I accept this responsibility and it is my privilege to embrace it. I want the favor of God and his blessing on my home. Any good man does. So where are you men of courage? Where are you fathers who fear the Lord? It's time to rise up and answer the call that God has given to you and to say, I will, I will, I will. It's a very powerful clip. Men of God, it's very powerful call to devotion, call to yield your life, call to follow, call to lead. You know, if you follow Jesus, you can really lead. <laughs> and so I want to invite you to do that. This Passover, whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you are one who has been following your whole life, but you just need to grow in your devotion to him, you need to yield a little more. Church, we need to lead not only our families, but this world at this time. We need to be the example of those whose lives are surrendered fully, completely, utterly to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I'm going to pray a prayer. And I want you to invite you, if you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, or if this is the first time, uh, and, or if you've been doing it for a long time, I just want you to pray this prayer. You can stand, just like they asked the men to stand, you can stand if you want, but let's pray this prayer together. Say, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have sent Jesus as my Passover lamb and my substitutionary sacrifice. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I ask you to come into my life to help me to lead by following you. I surrender my life to you today. I surrender my family to you today. I surrender my future to you today. And I know that I'm safe in your arms, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, don't miss this Passover. Give God everything in your life right now.
He's a good, good Father. May the peace and the grace and the power and the presence and the joy and the warmth and the goodness of God be your portion and your family's portion. Happy Easter. You are loved.